Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Jay Remy Green, a partner at Cohen and Green PLLC and teacher at Boston University School of Law and Baruch College at the City University of New York, and Austin A. Baker, a postdoctoral assistant professor at the Rutgers Center for Cognitive Science. We will discuss their article, There is No Such Thing as a Legal Name, A Strange Shared Delusion. So welcome to the show, Remy and Austin, or rather welcome back to the show and welcome to the show for the first time, Austin. It's a great time to have you here. It's lovely to be here again. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. So this was a really fun and interesting and insightful paper that I had no idea that this question was as complicated as as it is until I read it. Um, so, I, I mean, I wonder if you could start with just kind of tackling as best you can the big picture question, like when the law says legal name, like, what does it mean by that, if if anything? It depends. Pause for laughter. Um, no, it, it's... The answer is, the law actually doesn't say legal name very often, if at all. And I think that's that's kind of the first thing that we, we are interested in pointing out in, in our paper. Um, right at the top, right, we, we quote a... a commercial loan treatise saying it is apparent that there is no correct legal name of an individual. And so a lot of the work we're doing in the paper is unraveling this idea that I think a lot of people have, that there is a clear legal reference to the term legal name. And there isn't. Now, there are a couple things that might be somebody's legal name in some senses. First, we talk about how people have common law names, right? The names they use in their communities. And in most states in the United States, that is your legal name. Um, Very few states have abolished the, the process of common law changing your name just by adopting a new name. Then, of course, you know, you, you could identify other kinds of legal names, right? The name on your driver's license, the name on your social security card, the name on your birth certificate, the name on your naturalization paperwork. But but those actually are not are very frequently for a lot of people not consistent. And so there is a failure of reference in the philosophical sense that, that, that comes with using the phrase legal name to say nothing of the fact that many institutions try to draw a distinction between somebody's preferred name and their legal name, when preferred name is literally just the definition of common law name, which I, right, I started with that. Preferred names in the sense that most people use that term are legal names, and, and certainly for commercial loan purposes, for example, at least until Article 9 proposed stopping using correct legal name altogether, the name somebody used in their community was their legal name for commercial loan purposes. Well, so, so, so what was so surprising to me about that observation was that people use the term legal name so frequently and seem to at least think they know what they're talking about. So I, I mean, I wonder why that is. Like, why is that term so frequently used? if it doesn't actually seem to have a whole lot of basis in the law itself and sort of what do people what do people think they're asking for when they use that term 
We talk about how the idea of a legal name is essentially like a shared delusion. So everybody thinks there's this notion of a legal name. It's kind of entered into common parlance in various parts of the law. Various institutions are using terminology like legal name, like um, on your driver's license application or for universities. And so there's just this general presumption that there exists something that is like a legal name. And so we all commonly use it. And so we're sharing in, in this delusion. But the the kind of thesis that we put forward in the paper is that the notion of a legal name doesn't actually uniquely refer to any particular thing. So we say the paper, there exists no such thing as a legal name, but at another point in the paper say that really could mean, you know, there are like seven and a half things as a legal name. You have all these different uh, documents that have different people's names on them. And so really what we should be thinking about is legal name referring to a bunch of different things rather than one particular entity. And it's doing harm for people when they buy into this notion or institutions buy into this notion and, and enforce upon them the idea of a legal name. And Brian, to your question of why institutions might use um, this this delusion, as we've called it, of, of a legal name, a lot of it is that it's very convenient, right? It, it would be very convenient for all of us if every person was, was, was clearly and legally picked out by one term, right? That, 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 that would be a nice state of the world for efficiency. It would be a nice state of the world for big organizations. And it would make things like running a giant computer system at a university much easier, um, and, and so, and, and it would be really great for those institutions if people didn't change their names. But that, right, th- I, I think that a lot of it is, it's convenient. So it, it, it's, it's difficult to change this notion, even though it's legally wrong, because it would be nice if it would, were true. And, and, and so what we emphasize in the paper to what Austin was just saying, is that the reason we shouldn't do that, we shouldn't let institutions pick out which names they use is because that causes people harm. Well, so in the paper, you talk about this really interesting intersection between the sort of common law of the names people use and the law of secure transactions, which I was not expecting when I started reading the paper, but actually had a lot of really kind of uh, helpful or at least interesting sort of ways of framing what kind of question is being asked and why you would ask the question in the first place. Why did, why did you use those two examples? Why, why did you think that they were illuminating and what did you learn from looking at the law of secure transactions? Well, th- th- there's actually a, 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 I think, interesting, but also less interesting than, than you might expect answer to that, which is I had a great contracts professor in, all, in law school, uh, Doug Baird, and he just he talked about this in our contracts class and made a big point of talking about like, actually, you don't know what legal name means. And it just stuck with me, right? Like, and it sat in the back of my head for a long time. And, 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 and every time somebody talked about uh, legal name, and you can actually find an essay I put all, out online talking about my legal name, like it's still graded on me to use that. And so Right, like I, I came back to this because it's something that that a, a great professor planted in my head, you know, must have been in like 2012, right? And and so that that's where it came from. But but I think one of the things that that I hope is persuasive in the paper is it's very interesting that Article Nine of, of the Uniform Commercial Code 
which is very much an efficiency-oriented system, right? It's designed to make it easy to figure out who owns what rights in what. And there is a normative value in that system to it, to it actually having reference. And so the fact that that system has, has reached a particular result, and then we look at a different system, and the other one we picked to look in depth at is the immigration system, where you know the law seems to insist that there is such a thing as a legal name, but there are all these problems with it. And it turns out that like, you know, that, that we, we talk about how there are some choice of law issues there, and there, there are some char- just keyboard character set issues where um, USCIS doesn't like it when you use non-standard characters in a name, and they, they actually ask you not to, even if that happens to be your legal name, but then they call the thing without the special characters your legal name. That There are all of these, th- that contrast ultimately shows that I don't think we really know what we're doing with, with the when we do say the word legal name. Yeah, one of the things I really liked about the contrast you drew between the law of secure transactions and immigration law is that it seemed like the law of secure transactions was being developed with an eye toward making correct and accurate reference to the individuals who wanted to identify, whereas the law of immigration was almost designed to make it hard for people to understand how to answer the question. Um, and it really said something deep to me about like sort of how we think about the, the purpose of both of those bodies of law. That plugs very nicely. And, and so I'm going to kick it to Austin for this, but I think that plugs very nicely into the normative conclusions that we reach in the paper and, and, and our discussion of, you know, what purposes could having a concept like legal name serve and, and, and who is it serving? So Austin's going to, probably jump in and, and and tell me I'm saying all of this wrong in the philosophical sense. But um, <laughs> I'll shut up and let them talk. No, no, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, so one thing we bring up in the paper, so even if you maybe accept this conclusion that people have multiple legal names, at least different names on different documents, you could still say me as an individual or a university as an institution or a bank as an institution, they should still get some sort of choice into what as to what legal name they refer to you by. So there's like two kinds of questions. What what is a legal name? And our legal answer here is that actually it can mean a bunch of different things and it sort of depends on the relevant context we're looking at. And then there's a further normative question that's created. Okay, so we have this, this conclusion that's sort of surprising and interesting that there exists multiple things that go under the label legal name, what do we then do with that? And so we put forward in the paper a norm, we call it the preference norm, that essentially says that institutions and individuals should defer to the legal name a person prefers when addressing that person in a personal or professional context. And so we're trying to then at this point in the paper defend this this notion that people should have some degree of autonomy or choice. And when you take that autonomy and choice away from them, when you as an institution or an individual uh, refer to them by a name that they're uncomfortable with, that doesn't represent various aspects of their personal identity, which we talk about at various points in the paper, you're doing them various kinds of harm. And we identify three different kinds of harm, um, dignitary harms, procedural harms, and what we call hermeneutical harms. Well, you also present what I would characterize as almost like a, an initial foray into like a restatement of the law of the name, as it were, which I thought was really helpful because it kind of put a pin 
in thinking about, you know, sort of how we should think about this problem in a more kind of analytically coherent way. Um, so kind of by way of transitioning into talking about some of the potential harms of not observing the norms or the kind of the, the, the framework that you suggest, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and what sort of what principles you think would be most important in doing this better. Right. So I, I, I like the way you, you, you've described it um, a, a, as an attempt at doing our own restatement of, of the law of the name. And, and, you know, we open the section by saying this is an, a bit of an absurd idea. And, and I, I think ultimately this is something I, I've run into in a, lot, in a lot of papers. I think one thing that people who are not practicing lawyers don't necessarily fully grok is, is that you know, there's no reason that the law has to be coherent across multiple fields, right? I, I remember in law school reading um, a classmate's paper that was proposing a law of the fetus and putting aside kind of the political implications of that, my, my, my reaction to it was, so what, right? Like uh, the law in, of torts when, when you have somebody who miscarries treats that differently than the law of abortion, but so what? The law is serving very different ends in those two systems, and, and there is no reason that you have to have it be coherent between those two things. Um, and, and the reason I think we, we plug into that and we try to explain through, like, a, call it a failed restatement of, of the law of the name, um, an intentionally failed restatement of the law of the name, is that there is this notion that that there is a, 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 a coherent um, unifying principle to legal names. And, and, and that's what people are, are naming when they say legal name, but there isn't. And that, that there absolutely isn't. And, and you know, that there are actually, you know, it's it, a lot of name because the name law, because there, there is not a federal statute is, is state by state, right? Like there, there are 50 different laws of the name and, you know that there is the common law law principle that that unifies them all. That at some point, every single state had the English common law that your name changes legally when you start using a new name. But it's funny that this unifying idea seems to be the opposite of that. And so that you end up with this mess. And and, and the point of, of 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 doing this restatement is is to really end up at. And so we have a mess. And 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 so this restatement can't be done. So if, if, if I'm hearing you right, it seems like on some level what you're suggesting is that we should shift from a kind of doctrinal perspective focused on clarity toward a normative – toward a kind of doctrinal perspective focused on the potential normative harms that might flow from not respecting or not recognizing the names that people choose to use for themselves – yeah, I think that's right. And I think one of the one of the reasons why this isn't something that I think gets a lot of traction in either the legal or the philosophical literature is like, here's a thing a lot of people in my field, so my PhD is in philosophy, here's a lot of thing, uh, something that philosophers often kind of bring to the table on names. We think of names as serving the function of picking things out in the world, people picking out pictures, and people and places. And, and that's, that's like the what names are supposed to do. That's how names function. And so in most of the philosophical literature, over the 20th century, and into the 21st century, most of the work on the meaning of names has really been 
with regards to reference, that names pick things out. We've got these kind of like the descriptivists on one hand, they're thinking about names as like the descriptions of somebody in your head. We've got causal theorists, they're thinking about names as these complex causal relationships that obtain between things in the world, the things that names pick out and the names themselves. But the idea is that what names do, why, how they function, why we have names is to pick out and refer to things. And so I think one of the really our novel philosophical contribution here is saying that, hey, like (laughs) names aren't only in the business of reference, right? Names also serve these various kinds of social functions. So one of the social functions that we like talk about, and, and well, I should say, I think a lot of this is, is somewhat obvious, like when people get married, they'll often change their last name. This isn't something we talk about in the philosophical literature, the legal literature, the linguistics literature, or the psychological literature, the social dimension of proper names. But if you get married and you pick a spouse's last name or spouses come together and they pick a new last name or they portmanteau their last names, the idea is what they're communicating to their community, to people that they know, is they're now a family unit and they would like to be represented in their community as family being a family unit. That's communicating social information. We also talk about how there are practices within certain racial and ethnic communities of picking names that are significant to those communities. Like, for example, in the U.S., we can track Black-specific naming practices back well before the Civil War. That's really important, especially to uh, oppress racial and ethnic minorities, to be able to choose a name that communicates this, this membership of a particular social group. And then, of course, for transgender people, choosing a name once they start transitioning, for many people, though not all, but for many transgender people, is marking a significant step in the way in which they're perceived. So names not only are referring and picking out, but they're also serving the social dimension. And so I think that's one of the aspects of names that have gone maybe underappreciated really philosophically, but also push this this normative answer. You're saying like we're giving a normative and like kind of less rigidly procedural answer because there are normative things at play here. When you refer to somebody by a name that a legal name that they don't prefer, again, assuming that people have, or if you follow our argument that people have multiple legal names, you're denying them the opportunity to represent themselves and hold themselves in the social community in a way that feels authentic and true to them. You're maybe denying them the opportunity to signal their familial relationships or their racial and ethnic background or their gender identity. And that is significantly harming them. And that has moral implications. So that's why we think we have to and we cannot divorce the normative implications of some of these um, considerations. I mean, it seemed to me reading the paper that at least part of the argument was that the name you should use when referring to someone, the correct name, I guess, maybe for someone is the name that they want to use or that they would like you to use for, for themselves. And, and, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more kind of specifically about the kinds of harms that flow from not using that name, either kind of institutional or maybe unintentional harms. But, but I get the impression that sometimes that there's like, it's not always unintentional. Yeah, I think that's right. I'll I'll say a few things and then I uh, I know Remy has some things to say on this too. So we sort of think there are a few different harms that are falling out. The first harm we think is created is something like a dignitary harm, which would be a harm that infringes upon one's personal interests. And these could be actions that humiliate, torment, threaten, intimidate somebody. But the idea is that it's a harm to someone's personhood and to their dignity. 
And so we think that in denying somebody the ability to be able to represent themselves and all of this wealth of social information that comes along with names uh, in the way in, that they want to, to be able to help self-determination in that we're inflicting a dignitary harm against them. So like one example would be um, somebody being misgendered, that's often considered to be really dehumanizing and humiliating. And when you enforce a legal name that someone doesn't prefer upon them, either, as you said, Brian, you know, intentionally enforcing that, and we definitely see some degree of that, or even unintentionally, you're doing them, you're humiliating them, you're infringing upon their personhood in this really problematic and, and fundamental way. And we know, in addition to obviously creating a set of embarrassing circumstances, maybe it's also creating negative health circumstances. So to take the gender case in particular, because we have good data on that, we know that, for example, when children and adults are able to transition, um, they have better health outcomes, both physical and mental health outcomes. And often in those studies, the relevant sense of transition is, is also changing their name. So being able to live with your particular name and communicate your gendered information to the world is increasing your health outcomes. And um, so thus, when you deny somebody the ability to be able to do that, you're infringing upon their their dignity and personhood. So that's that's one of the examples of the harms that we think is brought about by these sort of violations of, of this norm that you should be choosing the legal name that somebody prefers. And then there's kind of a secondary harm. And after this, I'll, I'll turn it over to, to Remy that we talk about is, is like a, a hermeneutical harm. So this this phrase goes back to philosopher Miranda Fricker's work on hermeneutical injustice, which is a variety of epistemic injustice, which basically just means infringement upon somebody's status as a knower or infringement upon their ability to be able to acquire knowledge. So um, Fricker defines hermeneutical harm by having some significant area of one's social experience obscured from the collective understanding owing to a structural identity prejudice in the collective hermeneutical resource, which basically just means you're being harmed because there doesn't exist a concept for the thing that you're experiencing. So she gives the example of like this woman, um, Carmita Wood. It's like a very famous case. She was sexually harassed at Cornell by somebody. She was a, a, a staff member in the nuclear physics department in the 1960s, but the term sexual harassment didn't exist. She continued to experience all of these instances of sexual harassment and was eventually forced to, because of the psychological trauma and because she started experiencing physical symptoms associated with that trauma, actually quit her job. And then she filed for unemployment and her claim was denied because she couldn't articulate what was happening because she didn't have the concept uh, sexual harassment. And then she was one of the people that with another group of women in Cornell ended up actually identifying sexual harassment as a phenomenon. So then subsequent people could say, hey, that's happening to me. I'm experiencing sexual harassment. And they had the appropriate concept, the hermeneutical resource to be able to bring to their experience. And so uh, we sort of think there's something like this that's happening in the proper name case, right? So you've got the primary harm, that's the infringement upon somebody's dignity. But you also have this sort of secondary harm, because as we talked about with the delusion, like everybody thinks that there really is something that is your legal name, this single um, unique legal name that's doing the reference getting, that's picking out people in the world. And when we all buy into that delusion, people are then harmed because if they feel uncomfortable, if an institution or individual is misgendering them, what it essentially is communicating to them is like, oh, you need to suck it up. Um, 
because that's not your legal name. And if you really cared about what your legal name was, well, you'd go to court or you would, you know, challenge the immigration system or so a lot of these options aren't, aren't available to us, but that's what we're telling people. This is like an immense ask. And so people are being harmed because the idea of legal name that is in the hermeneutical resource is false. So it's a little different than sexual harassment. It's not that the concept is unavailable in the shared hermeneutical resource. It is legal name is there, but it's wrong. It's thinking it's referring or picking out to one thing. And actually it's a multiplicity. So yeah, sorry, turn it over to Remy. Yeah. And I'll, I'll build on that. And then I'll talk about uh, the third kind of harm we talk about, which is procedural harm um, or what we call procedural harm. But the, the thing I want to build on that before we get there is I think sexual harassment is a very interesting example because right, we, we first have this, this, starting in the 1960s that that Fricker talks about, right? That, that defining this was a big moment. But then we also have the Kat McKinnon moment um, much later where uh, I, I think the same kind of legal mistake, although it's not quite a perfect uh, parallel, but the same kind of legal mistake that gets corrected where for a long time, we did not think sexual harassment was a kind of discrimination because of sex. and And I think ultimately the law course corrects um, after a series of, of, you know, directed litigation um, and, and after Kat McKinnon's book on the subject, right? Like we, we, we realize that um, where the legal system determines that in fact, this concept matches up with this legal concept and, and this, the, we, we correct this legal error of saying that sexual harassment is not sexual discrimination, um, right. So, 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 so I think there are perhaps more parallels than Austin initially suggests uh, there, although I don't think they're wrong to point out that it is a different kind of hermeneutical harm. Um, but, but just that kind of the legal story is, is a very interesting one there. And so I think that does also plug into, um, you know, th- this is perhaps my bone to pick in the paper, the, the, the procedural harm here, which is that I, I don't think that uh, – um, even if you have the hermeneutical resource here, right, you have the knowledge, you are a knower that knows that legal name does not mean the thing that NYU says legal name means. You don't have a remedy. You don't have a forum in which you can be heard to challenge the, the, the use of the word legal name on, on the form. Um, this is even more true in the immigration context where, you know, you don't, you don't have the power to challenge anything about how they refer to their forms or what language they use, even if they're legally wrong, right? Um, and, and so th- there, is a, there is a rich procedural justice literature that shows that, that, in fact, people have better outcomes and perceive systems as working better, not because of the results they reach, but because of the opportunity to be heard on certain issues. And I, I think we, we argue in the paper, and, and we're going to expand this in, in the publication draft that's going to I hope be soon. Um, but but there is there is a procedural injustice here too, in that people are not able to to essentially make the point that we make in the paper, right? Like every day I have to write down what my legal name is in in certain places when I know that's not my legal name. And I I, I try to put an asterisk on, on forms because I'm that kind of person. But but it it doesn't do anything, right? And and, and I think that is a harm. Um, especially 
when all of the a lot of these forms, especially in the immigration context, require an affirmation under penalty of perjury that that's your legal name. And so, if you have the hermeneutical resource, in some ways, it's actually worse because you know you you are knowingly committing perjury to avoid dealing with this issue. So, I wonder if you could talk more directly, perhaps, to this sort of pushback that some of the arguments or observations that you're making might get from people who say, for example, you know, want to believe that their sort of imaginary concept of a legal name is a real thing, or maybe resist using someone's preferred name for one reason or another. Why are they wrong? Why should they stop doing it? And what should we do about it? I, I can start with the why, why are they wrong, and, and Austin will tell you what, what we should do about it, I think. Um, but the why are they wrong, right? That goes back to what, what, you, what you said earlier at the top, Brian, right? We, we're, we, we did look at what is the law of legal names, and, and just as a matter of law, they're wrong, right? That th- This is not what the phrase legal name means. It, it, in fact, has very little content, if any content at all. Um, but critically, right, the oldest definition of legal name from the common law is the name that you hold yourself out to the community as. It's it's the same concept, right, as common law marriage, for example. But while most states, I think, have supplanted common law marriage with statutes, um, not my area, uh, I could be wrong about that, but there are only, I think, two or three states that have actually supplanted their common law definition of names and their common law definition of legal name with a statute. And, and virtually every other state has explicitly said, no, we have not replaced that, that regime. Common law names are still legal names. So right, just as a matter of law, they're wrong. Um, they, they, they would lose the argument on appeal. It would get de novo review. As a litigator, I would be very comfortable even seeking sanctions about that argument. <laughs> Um, but why I think is, is the more interesting question and, and right. Austin's going to get into this, but as, and I'll admit they wrote this part of the paper and it's great. Um, but, but the point they make at the top of, of the philosophy argument is, okay, we've shown that there are multiple choices, but that doesn't, um, that, that doesn't include by necessity a particular choice among the options. So, so we, we do have that lift in the paper in front of us. So Austin, yeah. help, help us lift this. To, de- to defend the like um, motivations to, to do normatively good things. Um, that's always fun. <laughs> that's not been a, his- a problem in the history of philosophy at all. Um, yeah, no. So like so a, couple, a couple of things about that, uh, I would say. Um, I think, I mean, certainly like people, people in institutions are like, it's a the kind of normative arguments are going to be a little bit different than the legal ones, right? And so just if you have like a normative obligation doesn't necessarily mean you're going to follow through. We do talk in the paper that we think uh, failures to comply with this kind of preference norm we put forward that you should call somebody the legal name that they prefer is a violation of, of what um, Stephen Darwall calls recognition respect. So there are going to be certain things that we think are just like um, deserving of our respect. So that's what recognition respect is supposed to communicate. So this can be things like the law. He gives that example. Maybe the law is worthy of our recognition respect. Maybe not. I don't know. I'd be interested to hear <laughs> your opinions on this as lawyers, but, um, uh, uh, 
he talks a lot about I think how, you're talking to the two wrong lawyers. Oh, uh, maybe. <laughs> He also talks about how recognition respect is owed to persons. This is the kind of respect we owe to persons. This can be contrasted with things uh, uh, like the sort of respect that we show to someone being really good at basketball or something. So that's going to be a different kind of respect than the respect we owe just by existing as a person, um, maybe legal institutions or things like, you know, your uh, uh, gender, your ethnic identity, your familial relations. Those are just the kinds of things that we owe recognition respect to somebody. And when you don't show them recognition respect, when you're failing to respect this essential part of themselves, you're doing something wrong, or we think they're doing something wrong. And so in failing, because names have this social feature that has sort of been unexamined in much of the literature, if you do not allow somebody to express those social features, you're failing to to show them recognition, respect. Their name is something that's deserving of respect from you. So you're doing something wrong. Um, that might not motivate you as an institution. And I'll leave it up to the lawyers to like, <laughs> you know, drive home the legal point more, but that should motivate you at least from a normative perspective. I think we also think that it's important to be able to bring this this knowledge into the fore because I think a lot of people, especially people um, in the queer and transgender community, are disincentivized from transitioning or from changing their names because they think the complexities that we've been articulating bar them from being able to change their names, that it's too difficult. How would I ever get the right name, you know, that I would associate with the university or my driver's license? Everything is really, really um uh unclear to people. And I think a lot of people are disincentivized from being able to live uh, in their communities in an authentic way to be able to communicate the things they want to communicate, the stuff that can include things like their race and their gender, etc., because they're intimidated by a lot of these legal complexities and because they're intimidated by this collective delusion people have that there's this one thing that's a legal name. And so I think one of the, the sort of most foundational motivations of this project is to clarify some of that to show the notion of a legal name for the farce that it is and to give people the opportunity to to live authentically and to and to be able to to select the names that make sense for them. What Austin was saying I think could be called our more ambitious normative argument, but we also make something of a more modest set of policy proposals as well and um right the, the, these these are uh coming a little bit more from the legal angle and and ideas based on things that people have done about what policymakers and, and legislatures, et cetera, could do to address this kind of thing. Um, and, and one of the interesting things there, right, is, is a lot of our philosophy argument begins from the, there are not kind of big competing reasons when addressing a person to use something other than the name they want. But it turns out in some legal areas, there might be um, at at least, there might at least be competing interests, right? So for when you're filing your taxes, um, the IRS has a reason to ask you for the social, the the name on your social security card, Um, right? It's, It's because that's the name that kind of plugs into everything and makes their system go. And similarly, if if you are employed by a university, uh, the payroll department has a reason to ask for your social security card name for those purposes. And 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 in fact, the law requires them to use that. And so, so what we propose is is something we call an unless otherwise provided by law approach to name to to using people's uh, chosen names or common law names or the name that they 
compel you to use, right? If there is a law that requires otherwise, then you should use the one the law tells you to use. But that should be limited only to those contexts where the law requires it. Um, and, and otherwise, we, we think that, you know, it's actually a pretty straightforward reading of anti-discrimination law in, in many contexts, right? When a name is is something based based on having racial content, a name is something based on having gender content. It's a pretty straightforward discrimination claim if you refuse to use somebody's name and you don't have a legal reason you need to do it. Um, and, and in fact, uh, for example, the guidance in New York City on on, on gender discrimination sets that out explicitly, right? If, if you condition using somebody's name on them getting a court-ordered name change, unless all law provides that you have to do that, that, that is a kind of discrimination and it's actionable in New York City. So one thing that really struck me when, when reading the paper was, was how in a lot of contexts, we, we, you know, the concern that people have about using or what name someone uses in a legal uh, in a legal context or sort of in a context where they're holding themselves out to be someone is that we don't want people to be misleading, right? Or to be conveying misleading information about their identity. And so we want to have a legal name so that people have to use the name that will help others identify who they actually are. And what I, what I thought was really interesting about your your sort of proposals in the paper is that they really seem consistent with that ultimate goal. I mean, it struck me that like what you're really saying here is we should use the pe- the names that people use to identify themselves so that it's clear who we're talking about and that refusing to allow people to use the names that they actually use for themselves is actually creating the kinds of legal confusion that in other contexts we would want to avoid by not allowing people to sort of use a fake name and and mislead people. Well, th- yeah, that's the argument. I, I don't know that I need to respond to that, but but uh, I, I will add on to that in that I, I think this is a lot of the reason we plug into the article the, the, the article nine stuff, right? So so the example, the, the big case we discuss is, is the Louis Dickerman slash Brooks Dickerman case from the Fifth Circuit. Um, in the Article Nine context, where uh, this guy Louis Dick, or I'm sorry, Dickerson, not Dickerman, um, this guy Louis Dickerson um, has a number of secured interests. One bank registers an interest against Louis Dickerson. The other bank registers against Brooke, Brooks L. Dickerson, which is the name on his driver's license. But everyone in the community knows him as Louis Dickerson, and, and I think. The, the, the result the Fifth Circuit reaches here is, is that it would actually be confusing to use the driver's license name because everybody knows that, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's Louis Dickerson's cows that are the security interest here. And, 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 and to do otherwise, right, to, 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 to bow to this kind of legal name concept that the Fifth Circuit, the Fifth Circuit rejects, um, it, it would would be to cause the confusion that that I think often gets weaponized in, in asserting that we can't use trans people's real names, um, and and so I, I think one one of the the point that you're making, Brian, is is exactly right, right? That 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 all of the way we've thought about this when, when scary trans people aren't involved actually points towards using people's names that they tell you to use. So. 
reading the paper, one thing that I, I kind of a question I had that I didn't know how to answer, and I wonder if you have thoughts about it, is like, is what we need like a law of names or is what we need like an, an ethics of naming or some combination of the two? In other words, how should we think about what we're doing when we think about what we call people and why we call them that? Yeah. So I think from the normative perspective, um, being, being the philosopher that has put on the philosophy hat and can't necessarily speak to some of like all of the, the kind of legal considerations, I would, I think, um, uh, one of the big things we should be normatively striving for is, um, kind of honoring people's preferences and, uh, the, the way they present themselves to their community and thinking about that, not as something. So one thing that often gets talked about in, um, queer studies, for example, is like this problematic language of like preferred pronouns. So we did talk about, and it is complicated in the paper. We do talk about people's preferred legal names just to designate the legal name that they identify with. People often find the language of preferred pronouns complicated because it's not your preferred pronouns. Those like are your pronouns. So we mean something like more robust by preference, like what it is and what people should be referred to uh, in terms of their name should be solely determined, at least in terms of most instances by by them and how they want to present themselves. So I think in kind of one big thing is finding ways within institutions and even interpersonal um, relations to be able to try to honor and respect and give space for people presenting themselves authentically into engaging in their communities authentically. So taking seriously in a very, very robust way, this notion of preference and how their names are determined. And also, as I was talking about earlier, kind of demystifying some of this process and a lot of the um, kind of legal stuff that comes along with this notion of a proper name so people can choose names and represent themselves in a in a relevant kind of uh, uh, authentic way. And I think the other thing, you know, I'll, I'll jump in on the legal side and, and, and say, you know, w- one of the things that plugs directly into your question, Brian, is there is in some ways, a law of the name, right? That, that, that We don't need to create it. it. It exists. You can go read the Fifth Circuit's decision in the Louis Dickerson case and find out how names work legally, um, at least according to the Fifth Circuit at that particular time. Um, and and you can you can go and, and, and look at different areas where names get treated by law, and, and you can trace this all the way back to common law England and find out that, in fact, uh, you know, the heritage of our law is that people, by declaring their name, have changed their name legally, right? And, and, and so the question is, is not necessarily, should we have a law of the name or, or, or anything like that, but how should we handle the, this kind of multifaceted internally contradictory law of the name that has come to us. Um, And and I think to get out of that box, we do have to turn to things like an ethic of the name, right? I I think that there there is no other way to resolve those disputes, um, but resolve them we must. And and so, right, like, I, I think that the question that our paper necessarily raises, even if you don't agree with the conclusion we have, is what values do you use in resolving this incoherent, this delusion that there is something, some one thing that is somebody's legal name? And I think that that, that we've made, I hope we've made, a persuasive argument about one way to resolve that. Um, but But 
people could obviously disagree. Austin? Yeah, I was just going to say, I would say like, kind of to add on one, one other thing. Um, uh, if we're thinking about uh, the things that we can do and, and sort of resolving this, this conflict that, that Remy's identified, I think thinking back to if one of the harms is coming from a deficit in the hermeneutical resource, like we have a notion of a legal name, it doesn't legally bear out. It doesn't, that's not how names refer. Your legal name is actually like seven different things. I think like um, both on the legal side and on the like normative interpersonal side, changing the hermeneutical resource, like that thing, legal name should not mean in people's heads and within institutions, the thing it means now. And so I think taking uh, a sort of perspective of actually like changing that concept, I think would help people a lot. And it would help settle and at least like help us get a handle as we're setting up some of these really complicated legal issues and ethical issues that would be clarified if we were able to change that within the, our shared hermeneutical and conceptual resource. Mm. Well, Remy, Austin, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure. I thought this was a great paper and I learned a lot reading it and, and talking to you both about it. So I look forward to seeing it in print. Thanks, Brian. It's been great to be here. And unlike the other times I've been here, uh, one benefit is all of the great ideas I got from talking to you now get to actually make it into the paper. Yeah, thank you so much. This was this was really lovely and a, a really helpful conversation. So thank you. Evolution's analysis. 